Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come before you, a people in need of knowing you, of knowing your son, Jesus, of being united to him by your spirit, a people who you've done these things, and a people who need to know the depth of these mysteries so that we might have our faith confirmed and strengthened and so that we might rightly worship you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Help us to understand and wrap our minds around what must ultimately remain a mystery. I pray that you'd give us a glimpse of this mystery this morning. We pray for your help now as we spend time meditating on your word. Would you cause us to be like the tree that's planted by streams of living water that bears fruit in season? We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This Sunday, friends, is the first Sunday of the Advent season. We mark that with our lighting of the Advent candles, and we usually mark this season by taking a break from our regular flow of preaching through a book to meditate on a particular aspect of the gospel. This Advent season, I thought it would be helpful for us to spend time thinking about and digging into the mystery of the incarnation. The title for this sermon series is Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which is obviously from that song that we're going to sing together during our Lord's Table time later today. But that really expresses my desire is that as we come and think about these deep things of God, that we would behold this mystery and be filled with wonder. The sermon title for this morning is The Mystery of the Incarnation because we're going to start there. Everything else is going to flow out from there. But this morning we want to talk about the incarnation itself. Because this incarnation, this Jesus, the eternal son of God, becoming fully man and staying fully God. This incarnation is at the center of our faith. It is indeed the central mystery of our faith and of all reality. Think about these two ways of thinking about Jesus' birth. We have in Luke a relatively normal birth narrative. We're told in Luke 1 that it's by the Holy Spirit that the Virgin Mary will conceive. So it's certainly not normal. But when it comes down to Jesus' actual birth, what's described is fairly normal for the day. Luke, six, or Luke 2, excuse me, 6 through 7. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This would have been not abnormal for any other baby at that stage that was unable to find somewhere that was visiting a far, uh, a, a foreign city or a far city from where they were from or where they were currently living and had to give birth. Gave birth to a firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. But we see in the Gospel of John, this same event described this way. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word become flesh, or John 1, 1, starts out this word was God and was with God from before creation. All things were made through him, and now he became flesh. How does that work? Can you begin to explain how this is even possible? There are not sufficient words to exhaust this mystery, And this is the center of all of our faith. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the incarnation. He says, in Jesus Christ, the reality of God entered the reality of this world. The place where the answer is given both of the question concerning the reality of God and the question concerning the reality of the world is designated solely and alone by the name Jesus Christ. In him, all things consist and henceforward then one can speak of neither God nor of the world without speaking of Jesus Christ. All concepts of reality do not take account that do not take account of him are abstractions. All of reality, the center of everything we know and see and think about the world around us, is ultimately pointing back to this event, this incarnation of Jesus Christ. The word eternal becoming man, temporal. This is the central mystery of our faith, is the central mystery of all reality. And I want us to wrap our minds around that, how important it is. And then we're going to try to talk about what it is that is actually happening. The implication, first of all, from the fact that it is the central mystery of our faith, is that mystery means that the incarnation is not a problem to be solved. We can't approach this idea of Jesus becoming man the eternal son of God becoming man as a problem to be solved by our natural reason. This is what led to massive amounts of heresies in the first few centuries of the church. You can trace the flow of all of the early church heresies to trying to solve the problems of the mystery of the gospel and particularly the mystery of God becoming man. To try to explain these things away by reason or try to make them get a sense that we've comprehended them fully is is not only futile, it actually leads to us speaking falsely about God. And so we must not treat the incarnation as a mystery to be solved. It must remain in some sense a mystery to us. But the second implication I want to draw from this is that the fact that it is the central mystery of our faith means that we must understand something about the incarnation in order to rightly have faith. We must understand something just because we cannot comprehend the incarnation exhaustively does not mean we can't say true things about what has happened here in Jesus, the eternal son of God becoming man. In fact, we must say true things about the incarnations and the implication because It is central to our faith. Paul, when he gave this early confession of the church, he talked about the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth in 1 Timothy 3. And then he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And the first thing he talks about is the incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh. 
Then he says he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. But it starts with he was manifested in the flesh. We must say true things about this because this is so central to our faith. In fact, the Athanasian Creed puts it this way. It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now, this is the true faith. And then they go on to describe the incarnation. The Athanasian Creed puts out two things that are vital for us to believe for eternal salvation. One is in the triune God and his nature as triune. And the second one is in the incarnation. The fact that the eternal son of God became man. The goal of our time together then, the goal of considering all of these things is to think about them faithfully and to think about them as necessary for eternal salvation and to be moved then into worship. See, the problem we have is because the incarnation is such a mystery, because this idea of the word becoming flesh is so foreign to us, so strange to us, so hard to understand, we sometimes neglect thinking about it at all. Or we neglect any kind of deep thought about it. One of the ways we might approach this issue is to affirm the incarnation, but affirm it so vaguely and with, with such little clarity that we end up not really affirming much at all. We end up not knowing what we're saying when we say that Jesus Christ was incarnate. And so one of the goals of our time together is going to be consider what is the incarnation? What do we mean by that? A second problem arises, though, in that we affirm rightly the incarnation. And maybe we articulate it rightly. We're given great ancient creeds to help us do that. But then we think very little about what it actually means and why it matters so much to our faith. We don't think of it as necessary for eternal salvation. We think of it as merely a precursor to the cross itself. But our goal is to consider these things, to not think about mainly how has this happened, but who are we talking about when we're talking about the incarnation. And because of thinking about the who, thinking about Jesus Christ incarnate, and thinking about what that means that he became man, and what that means for us, our goal is that we would confess rightly this mystery, and that we would be pushed towards renewed worship in light of this mystery. That's the goal for this whole sermon series as we meditate on these things. And we're going to start doing that today, Lord willing. The first question we must answer, though, when we're approaching any discussion of the incarnation is what do we mean by the incarnation? We must confess the incarnation faithfully. So what does the incarnation mean? What's the nature of this mystery? The Nicene Creed gives us a helpful starting point for thinking about this mystery. The Nicene Creed and the, and the necessary and related parts says this, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, very God of very God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. You can see the little dot, dot, dots. That means it's not all the Nicene Creed says, but those are the important parts for our discussion, thinking about the incarnation. This idea that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, and Jesus Christ was made man. 
In other words, is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus man? Yes. What do we mean by those things, though? Jesus is the eternal son of God who became fully human while remaining fully God is, I think, the way we could summarize the incarnation. Jesus, the eternal son of God, became fully human while remaining fully God. This is the clear testimony all throughout scripture. I want to show us a couple of scriptures. These are probably familiar ones. Even if we don't understand necessarily what they mean, we know that what it is telling us is that Jesus is God and that Jesus was made man. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was God, sharing, sharing in the divine nature, and the Word was made flesh, sharing in our nature. Or Colossians 1, 15 and 19, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or Hebrews 1, 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the God-man. Hebrews 2 says that he partook of the same things that we are made of. The children share in flesh and blood, the children of God. Therefore, Jesus was made to partake in those same things so that he could be that merciful and faithful high priest like we read about earlier in our service. Jesus as the God-man is the clear testimony of Scripture, but also of the ancient creeds. All of these creeds and councils that happened in the first few centuries of the church arose in response to people's attempts to solve these mysteries By treating them like problems and then creating ideas of how they might be solved and ending up far off, articulating things like there's not actually three persons in God, but there is only one God in three modes. It's called modalism. It's an early Trinitarian heresy rejected by the Council of Nicaea and by the Council of Chalcedon. We already talked a little bit about the Nicene Creed. You saw those pieces. I want to talk about one more ancient council, which is the Council of Chalcedon. Nicaea was in 325 AD, so about 300 years after Christ, and Chalcedon was in 451 AD, about 400 years after Christ. In the Council of Chalcedon, they were trying to articulate how this could be that Jesus could be both God and man, and they came up with a Chalcedonian definition. Here's what it says, or at least part of it. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Recognized in two natures, God and man. Two natures, but here's four qualifications that they give. These are the fences of Chalcedon, drawing a box around what we mean when we say Jesus is God and man. Without confusion, without change, without division, Without separation. There is no confusion or mixture of the natures. There is no changing of the natures. There is no division of the natures. You can't separate them. It says the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. Bringing together God and man does not make these things no longer different from one another. But rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is God and man, fully God and fully man. And this is the clear teaching of the ancient church. This is the clear teaching of the reformers. Time means we don't have uh, 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 as much time as I'd like to go into that. But I want to read from one more affirmation, and that is our sojourner's elder affirmation of faith, because this is the clear teaching of our elder affirmation of faith as well. We believe that when the eternal son became flesh, he took on fully human nature so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion or mixture. Thus, the person Jesus Christ was and is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is the God man. He is, as we mean by the incarnation, fully human while remaining fully God. This is, I heard it once compared to like putting the entire ocean in a paper cup. Even, even that falls short because you still have a distinction with the ocean and the cup, right? Some way that they're able to remain separate. But it's something like that. It's more so because it's without confusion or without change or without division or without separation. But it is the fullness of God, as Colossians says. In the man, Jesus Christ, who is fully human, like you, like me. Brought together in unity. The closest thing we probably have is the one flesh union of marriage. But even that, though it is a mystery, we still remain distinct Right? Separate in many ways. Why does this matter, though? This is the fact of the incarnation. Jesus, fully God, fully man, coming together as one. But why does it matter? That's what we want to spend the bulk of our time on this Advent season. Why does this matter? I think this is important to think about for us and to spend our time about because most of us, I would guess... If we were asked, why does the incarnation matter? We would give some answer to the effect of Jesus needed to be a human to die on the cross for us. Right? Like, we, we, we know that enough. We know that we needed a human substitute on the cross in order to actually atone for our sins, to take on our, the, the, to be a substitute for us. So most often we start with the cross and work our way backwards and end up seeing the incarnation as a necessary prerequisite to the cross. But friends, I want to argue during this Advent season that it is so much more than that. There's so much more going on and to be seen and to be wondered at in the incarnation than merely as a prerequisite for the cross. I'm going to argue during this Advent season that Jesus' work of atonement is not merely restricted to the cross, but actually started at the incarnation. Started with him taking on human flesh. Him taking on our nature. Today, though, I want to think about even before that. I want to start with our knowledge of God. I want to start with our knowledge of God. This is the main thing I want us to think about and walk away with on the incarnation today. Is that in the incarnation, the triune God became part of his own creation so that we might know him as his creation in the incarnation the triune god became part of his own creation so that we might know him see the problem with our sin is that it has so distorted and broken our knowledge of god that we don't know him 
Not, not only do we not know about him, like facts about him, but we don't know him in the sense of relational, personal knowledge. Our sin separates us from God. It distorts our view of who he is. And it distorts and breaks our relationship with him. And so our knowing of God is fundamentally broken because of sin. This is why we can know things about God from creation, right? If we read Romans 1, we're told that, that what is, can be known about God and his divine power and nature is, is plain in his creation. But that human beings, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We can know true things about God in his natural revelation, but special revelation. God revealing himself is necessary for us to know him in any kind of personal way. We must be brought to know him just like in order to know someone else. You have to actually meet them, right? Be brought into contact with them to have personal knowledge of them. Otherwise, it's just knowledge about them. Our knowing is so broken, in fact, that even God's self-revelation inscripturated in the Bible will be ignored without a much more radical kind of revelation. This is why Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, can say, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. Not knowing that they're about me, and then you refuse to come to me that you may live. The Bible has no life apart from Jesus Christ. And so, our knowing is so broken that even God's self-revelation in his speech through the scriptures will be empty without a much more radical revelation. Church history demonstrates easily that we will ignore the Bible over and over again and that we will fail to know God without Christ. So in the incarnation, the triune God became part of his own creation so that we might know him. What this means is that the triune God came personally. Personally, to bring personal and experiential knowledge of himself to his estranged image bearers, to you and I. As the Son of God, Jesus knows God perfectly. We would all, I think, affirm that. We can see that taught in Scripture. For example, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 14, 10 and 11, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Right? There's a, there's a oneness between the Father and the Son that we're clearly taught in Scripture. This means that Jesus, as the Son of God, knows God perfectly. But he doesn't just know God the Father perfectly. He knows the triune God perfectly. Why? Because he's the second person of the Trinity, right? As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit. There's not a division within the Trinity that means there's some parts of the Father that the Son does not know. There's not a division within the Trinity that means there's some parts of the Father and the Son that the Spirit does not know, right? We're taught over and over in Scripture that there's this mutual indwelling within the Trinity, Theologians term that perichoresis, which I think is just a great word. Perichoresis. It means the mutual, internal, abiding, and interpenetration of the divine persons. In other words, because the Father is in the Son and the Spirit, and the Son is in the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, all three are in perfect unity all the time. 
They are distinct. There are three persons in the one God, but they are not separate. They are in perfect unity. And in that perfect unity, they know one another perfectly. This is why Jesus knows the Father perfectly, because the Father is in him and he's in the Father. This is why Jesus knows the triune God perfectly. But here's the catch with the incarnation. That would be something. But get a load of this. Jesus knows God perfectly as a human. Jesus is the first human to know God perfectly. Because of the incarnation, Jesus is actually human. And because of his pre-existence as the eternal God, Jesus is actually God. And so he is a human who knows God perfectly. This means that the knowledge of God that Jesus shares with us is not second-hand knowledge. It's not knowledge of God from someone who's heard about God. It's knowledge of God from someone who before time began was part of the intertrinitarian fellowship of life and love. This means that the knowledge of God that Jesus shares with us is experiential. It's knowledge that he has because he has experienced it. It's knowledge that he has that is personal. Because he himself is united personally with the triune God. This is knowing. No mere knowing about, but knowing. This is important for us to comprehend because what the incarnation means then is that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, who knows God perfectly because he is united with the triune God, has become a human being and united himself to our nature, to who we are, so that in his incarnation, Jesus brings us to know the triune God, not just any way, but in the way that he does. He brings us to know the triune God in the way that he does. Jesus came not just to reconcile us to God. The cross certainly did this. But to bring us to know God. To not just know about God, but to know God in the way that he does. The way that the Son knows the Father and the Spirit. This experiential, relational knowledge of God. John 18, for example, says this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is, this is right after he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's meditating on this. And he says, no one has ever seen God. We know from 1 Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light. And yet, no one has ever seen God. And yet, the only God who is at the Father's side, the word made flesh, has made him known. In his incarnation, Jesus brings us to know God in the same way he does. How does he do that? I believe that scripture teaches that Jesus does that by uniting with our humanity. In other words, Jesus becoming man, truly man, like you and I are part of mankind, taking on our nature, united our nature with his In such a way that we are brought in to know God in the way that he does. Listen to John 17, 20 to 23. This is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I think this is one of the best descriptions of what I'm talking about. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In other words, I think we might describe what's happening this way. Jesus the Son, the eternal Son of God, is united with Father and Spirit in perfect union in the triune God, right? He's united forever, has always been, always will be, in this perichoretic union. And then, in the incarnation, Jesus, as the divine Son of God, eternally united to the triune God, unites himself with our human nature. He becomes what theologians call homo son. It's a Greek word which means the same substance or same reality. It's the words used in the confession, which is why they label it that way. That Jesus becomes the same substance with us, without failing to be the same substance with the Father and the Spirit as part of the triune God. So Jesus, united with Father and Spirit in perfect perichoretic union, then in the incarnation brings that divine nature and unites it to ours in perfect union in his person. And then, the good news of the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, you and I are united with Christ. You and I are united with Jesus, our human nature united to his And therefore, through him, united to the triune life and love of God. United to the Trinity in a way that can only be described as mystery. We don't just encounter God in Jesus, in other words. In the incarnation, Jesus brings us to know God as he knows God. And this is participation in the life of the Trinity. Participation in the life and love of the triune God, in other words. In the incarnation, we might say the triune God became part of his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ so that we might know him or, in other words, share in his life and love. This is what it means for Jesus to come down incarnate. This is what it means for us is that we, through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ, are brought to share in the life and love of the Trinity. This is what Jesus described in his earthly ministry. Even if it wasn't in these words, this is what he was talking about. When he says in John 10.10, I came that they may have life. He defines his purpose. And then he says what he means by that in the high priestly prayer. John 17.3. This is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. One of the things we're going to emphasize during this series in Advent, is that the life that we receive from God, what we call eternal life, is not something that is distinct from the triune God. As if there's 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 this like life jar that Jesus comes and fills up and he just keeps filling it up and we just keep receiving life. To receive life means to receive him. This is why the incarnation is so vital, because in the incarnation, we are brought into the life that God has in himself as the fountain and giver of all life. There is no other life. This is what it means to share in his life. This life, this knowing God, 
did not begin and end with his cross work. In other words, you receive eternal life from Jesus, not solely based on his cross work, but based on him himself coming to bring life. His cross work is an apex of that, but not alone. His giving life began with his incarnation and stretched through his life and death and resurrection and continues in his embodied ascension and his continued presence with his people by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself is our life and he came to bring that intertrinitarian life to us so that we might share in the life of the triune God. We share in his life, but we also share in his love. Jesus says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. His love, in other words, is not a love that he has in and of himself alone, but it's a love that he has by nature of his sharing in the loving communion of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the Trinity before creation. Michael Reeves, in his book on the Trinity, asks the intriguing question, what was God doing before creation? What was God doing before anything else? The reality is God was a father loving his son, united in perfect unity by the love between them, sharing in that with the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in loving community. And so when Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you, he's talking about that love that God had for him before the ages began. And in John 17, 23, when he's talking about that union, that I and you and me and me, uh, I and you and you and me and us and them. John 17, 23, then he says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. In the love we experience from and through Jesus we experience the triune love of a father for his son. This means that Jesus doesn't change the disposition of God. That Jesus, that Jesus doesn't make God suddenly like us more. What this means is that Jesus, by uniting ourselves to him, unites us to his experience of the, tri- of, of the father's love. Unites us to his trinitarian experience of love rather than changing god to make us him like us a little bit more because there's not enough that you could do to make god like us more uh in a worldly sense but in a sense of sharing in the love of christ there is everything that jesus could do by uniting us to him he brings us into that love and we get to experience that love this is what it means To say that Jesus is incarnate. This is what it means to say that Jesus came as a full man, even while remaining fully God. In the incarnation, the triune God became part of his own creation so that we might know him. The triune God in the person of the Son. We confess clearly with the confession that the person of the Son is the one who came. And yet, through some divine mystery that we can't comprehend, the person of the Son did not like peel off from the Father and the Spirit and come. But the person of the Son came in the flesh while remaining eternally united with the Father and the Spirit. And we confess that this person of the Son came so that we might be and became part of his own creation so that we might know him or share 
somehow mysteriously in this intertrinitarian life and love. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to the incarnate Son, and he does so, so that we may know the life and love of the Father. I think the only place for us to go from here is where Calvin goes, John Calvin, in his discussion of another divine mystery, the Lord's Table. The eating of Jesus' flesh and the drinking of his blood, which we may have time to get to in the course of this meditation on the incarnation. But not today. I think the only place to go, though, is the same place where Calvin goes when words fail to describe the mystery. He says this. Whenever this matter is discussed, when I have tried to say all, I feel that I have yet said little in proportion to its worth. Although my mind can think beyond what my tongue can utter, yet even my mind is conquered and overwhelmed by the greatness of the thing. Therefore, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery, which plainly neither the mind is able to conceive nor the tongue to express. Friends, throughout this series, we are going to try to express some of this mystery, but it will ultimately fall short. I'm hoping that it doesn't fall short by saying something false, about the triune God and the nature of the incarnation, which I'm leery of because of these things being difficult to speak about. But I'm hoping that what we do say can engender in us this sense of wonder, this sense of mystery, this sense of gratitude, thanksgiving, ultimately worship at God choosing to do to, to, to incorporate us into the, his triune life and love in this way, by sending his son, fully God, fully man, to live, to die, to be raised up, and to ascend bodily and remain interceding for you and I. And so I pray that we would say with Calvin, nothing remains but to break forth in wonder at this mystery. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you praise because you have done what we couldn't even have conceived of, Lord, let alone have have planned how to do, have had the power to do. Our minds bend back in on themselves and have no idea how to comprehend you becoming part of your creation. And yet you did. We confess the word become flesh dwelling among us. And we praise you for this great mystery. Would you help us now as we come to your table to behold even another mystery? How we receive nourishment from the body and blood of Christ at this table through these normal means. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.